Welcome to the CFO Playbook, where we bring you insights and strategies on how the many obstacles facing the heads of finance functions internationally are being tackled. I'm your host, Francis Bordenhorst, UK content lead at Soldo. In each episode, we help you grow your team, your company, and yourself. In this episode, I talked to Peter De Silva. Peter is a published author, public and private company director, and trustee for national not-for-profit organizations and national charitable foundations in the US, of course. He's a former Harvard University senior fellow at the uh, Advanced Leadership Initiative and author of Taking Stock, 10 Life Leadership Principles from My Seat at the Table. You may be a little bit surprised about what Peter has to say about leadership in 2023. We also talk about his experience at Harvard, why it was so valuable for him, the importance of cultivating relationships in both career and life, financial impacts of uh, the 2020 meme stock craze, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy the show. And if you want to keep updated on the CFO playbook, hit subscribe on whichever service you use for your podcasts. Enjoy. So we're joined now by Peter De Silva. How are you doing, Peter? I'm doing terrific, thank you. So Peter, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, what your story is in terms of your career, and what keeps Peter De Silva busy at the moment? Yeah, you know, it's been a crazy 35 years, quite honestly. I grew up in Boston, Boston area. I attended local college and then ended up at Fidelity Investments for 17 years, right? I walked in the door, I thought I'd be there maybe 17 weeks, and and I was there for 17 years, and uh, I was a, a leader in their mutual fund area. You know, the companies hadn't yet transitioned from sort of pure mutual funds to more of a brokerage and open architecture approach. And then I got a call to move to Kansas City, of all places, and I'm like, well, why would I do that? But it was a wonderful opportunity to lead a regional bank in Kansas City called UMB Financial Corporation. And I did that for 12 years and really enjoyed my time as a banker, enjoyed my time in the community, and just really had a, a delightful, delightful experience. And then it was off to Scott Trade, back to my roots, you know, back to my brokerage roots and my discount brokerage roots. And I ran Scott Trade Financial Services for a couple of years until we sold that to TD Ameritrade. And then TD Ameritrade asked me to come on and run their retail platform for about two to three years. And then we sold that company uh, to Charles Schwab. So right now, people don't like to see me coming because it seems like whenever I show up, we're selling companies. And certainly that wasn't, <laughs> uh, that wasn't the intention, but that's kind of the way it worked out. So after I finished up at Ameritrade, I went to Harvard for 18 months. Uh, Harvard has this wonderful program for leaders that are transitioning, if you will, and it's called the Advanced Leadership Initiative. So I spent 18 months at Harvard with some of the smartest minds, both locally and in the world, thinking about some of the most difficult and intractable social problems that we have to deal with. And during that period of time, I wrote my book. I just released a book on March 23rd called Taking Stock, 10 Life and Leadership Principles from My Seat at the Table which really chronicles the last 35 years and how I you know, managed through adversity. And I, I hope I leave the reader with a, with a blueprint on how they can improve and advance their career. That's an interesting story. And like you say, it's been 35 years. I mean, that's over three decades of experience there for us to mine in this conversation. So it's actually an interesting thing that you said there. And it's something that I'm quite fascinated by. And I had this conversation with my own father. He stuck around in a job for... Uh, 20 something years as well. I'm interested to know your perspective on that as someone who had a tenure that lasted that long, because obviously the, the inclination now is much more towards job hopping and sort of moving much more frequently. Why do you think that that inclination has come in? And do you think it's necessarily a positive thing? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a really good insight. You know, I I would say this. I stayed at these jobs a long time, 17 at Fidelity, 12 at UMB. You know, I'd probably still be at Scottrade if we hadn't sold it. But I did learn a lesson along the way. And I, I learned this probably at my time at UMB, which is, and I'll be candid, I probably stayed too long. And I stayed too long in the sense that when you stop learning, when you stop growing, when you stop advancing quickly, I think it's time to really reset and reconsider whether it's whether it's time to leave an organization. And I felt like I got a little stale. I got kind of I wasn't just going through the motions. We were doing really good work, but I wasn't learning and growing as quickly as I as I wanted to. So that was from my own personal perspective. In terms of today's young people in particular, you know, I think there's some fundamental shifts in how they think about their engagement with their employer. And I'd say shift number one is a lot of young people today think about where they want to live first and what kind of experience they want to have, what kind of life they want to have. They think about that first, and then they think second about where do I want to work? And that's a fundamental difference than when I grew up. I'll never forget when my boss at Fidelity came into my office one day and he said, son, he said, your job is moving to Cincinnati. Are you going with it or not? <laughs> it wasn't really uh, an option. It was like, that's going there and you have a choice. But the only two choices are you go with it or you maybe leave the company. And you employers can't get away with that today. I think there's this issue of deciding where you want to live first and the kind of experience you want to have and then where you want to work second. And it's a real challenge for employers to make sure that they create an associate experience that enables associates to, one, stay connected stay connected to the culture, stay connected to the relationships that one needs to build, but yet allow them the flexibility to do it their own way. Mm. It's an interesting parallel there, that point you made around people thinking first about where they want to live. Because I mean, you referenced the fact that you moved from Boston to Kansas City. Kansas City, I've been there. It's a lovely city. It's wonderful people, wonderful food as well. But um, it's not necessarily, I guess, the most fashionable city. I don't think people kind of necessarily have dreams of moving to KC. Is there something to be said for, um, especially at the start of your career, and especially if you're trying to really climb the ladder, sometimes just being flexible and open-minded about finding opportunities in, I guess, more quote-unquote regional cities? Yeah, 100%. I, I think there's a couple of points here. You know, one, and my boss at Fidelity told me this when I didn't want to go to Cincinnati, but eventually I did. And he said a couple of things that were really critical. He said, number one, you will learn and grow much faster away from headquarters than you will being at headquarters, which was completely counter to the way I was thinking about it. And his view was, if you get outside the bubble and you get into one of these regional centers, you have a lot more autonomy, you have a lot more ability to impact things and influence things than if you're sitting as one of many, 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 many people, no matter how senior you are at headquarters. So I thought that was really, really insightful and, and helpful to me. And second, he said, you you will get recognized. You will you will be recognized for that role and for what you're able to do in that domain. And he couldn't have been more right. Uh, he couldn't have been more right. I went to Cincinnati for two years. Uh, we agreed that it would be for two, and then I'd move back to Boston at the end of that. And I grew faster. I built better relationships. I feel like I was able to accomplish a very specific task, uh, if you will, and the recognition flowed. So I do think you know, getting out of that headquarters mentality, getting into a regional center or something along those lines is very important. And some of the biggest companies in America, GE among them, almost require their senior leaders to do a stint, quote, in the field. So they really understand how the company operates out with its clients. 
I remember I read a biography of Sam Walton and he had this tendency to just rock up at random stores and do stuff like pack bags and other things. I, I, I can't imagine being a Walmart sales assistant and seeing Sam Walton walk in to, to, just, to just spook around. But yeah, I mean, like, yeah, he had a very strong understanding that, like you say, like just getting out of that sort of bubble and not necessarily being around people that think the same way as you is also very powerful. I remember a story when I was at Fidelity, I was in Cincinnati, and Ned Johnson, of course, who's a, who's an icon of the financial industry, came to see us. And we had this whole thing choreographed, right? His whole day choreographed. We're going to put him in a conference room. We're going to give him a presentation. We're going to show him a demo. And five minutes in, he says, you know what? He says, I just want to walk around. I, I just want to walk around. I want to get a chance to talk to people. I want to see the front line. I want to hear from them. And I was horrified absolutely horrified like oh my goodness gracious he's on the loose and you know what's he going to see and at the end of the day he came back and he said well i saw some good things and i saw lots of things we can improve upon and that really stuck with me this idea that all wisdom doesn't come from you know headquarters it is really in the people that do the work that's where you find real wisdom it always stuck with me I guess there's different ways to get wisdom because you spoke already very highly about your time at, at Harvard, which is, it's the place if you want to attain knowledge. You know, it contrasts, I guess, quite starkly with that sort of everyday experience. But like what kind of wisdom and knowledge is there to be gained through an experience or an institution like that in your experience? Yeah, you know, so it came at a really interesting point, right? We had just sold Ameritrade to Schwab. I had a two-year non-compete. So I need to think about what I was going to do during that period of time. And this program just sort of found its way to me, which was extraordinary. But here's what I really took away. Here are 50 people from all over the world, from all walks of life. You've got business leaders, social impact leaders, government leaders, you name it. I mean, just amazing, amazing individuals. And, you know, it was really interesting during that period of time, of course, our first semester was remote because of COVID. And so here are 50 people who are trying to get to know each other and build relationships and trust, which, by the way, is code for relationships. Relationships equal trust and trust equals relationships. And imagine how difficult that was. And so the first thing I learned was that the human connection, the face-to-face, you and I, are we are face-to-face, but we're virtual today, right? And we can build a certain connection with each other. But you can't really build a permanent connection, I think, through digital mechanisms. And so I learned from that that, you know, it was very difficult to connect. It was very difficult to understand different cultures and different perspectives. And, you know, we'd have some very difficult conversations on some of the world's most intractable social problems, and people would be misunderstood. Perspective wouldn't be fully appreciated. And so here's what happened on the other side of that. You know, when we started the second semester, we had a two or three day offsite to kick it off. We were finally in person. And oh my goodness, everything changed. I mean, the perspectives changed, the appreciation for each other changed, relationships began to get developed, trust was developing, and conversations became a lot easier. So that's one of my big takeaways is despite all this wonderful digital media that allows us to connect this way, all good things in life happen with people and through people, and you still have to connect that way. In person, 100%. That's actually a really interesting point you're making about the digital interaction. Like, I mean, obviously, I understand the appeal. I've got a one-year-old. I understand the appeal of of remote work and hybrid work and all that. So what really got me thinking about this was I read a, a critique of dating apps. This person was talking about how with dating apps, it, it's precisely that problem, right? So it can't completely capture the kind of intangible 
qualities and things that we might find attractive in person, right? It sort of packages things very neatly. It doesn't really capture the full kind of essence of the person. That really struck me as, as applying very truly to, to work because, you know, I've had that experience too of like trying to have difficult conversations over video and it, it actually makes things quite difficult, doesn't it? It sure does. I'll tell you a brief story. So when I was at Ameritrade, we were growing like a weed, right? It was the meme stock trading frenzy and we were just growing like a weed. So we needed to hire thousands of people and the pandemic was raging. And so we had to figure out how do you source, recruit, train, onboard, and create sort of culture with people that you've never never met before. We, we've never met these folks. So everything was done virtually. Our team did an amazing job recruiting these individuals and training them and onboarding, et cetera. And then about nine months later, I was looking at some data. And what I saw was that these folks that we had hired during the pandemic were over-attriting, right? So we were over-indexing, if you will, on their attrition, right? And by significant margins. And so I asked the HR team, I said, do me a favor, do a little bit of research on this and come back and tell me what's going on. And they came back and told me what I should have understood, but didn't necessarily right away, which was they did exit interviews of these individuals. And they all said, look, I've never met my manager face to face. I've never been inside your facilities. I've never had lunch with my colleagues. And try as we might to inculcate them into our culture and into our environment, it was very, very, very difficult to do. And so when another company called up and said, we'll pay you $3 more an hour to sit in your basement and do the same job, we would lose them. And so I think the idea of remote work is wonderful. And I think we're headed to a hybrid environment, but there has to be a connection to the organization. There has to be a connection to the culture and to the people. And the ones that I feel the worst for, if you want to call it that, is those that really want to get ahead those that want to learn from role models, those that want to learn from others in the office, those that want to have those hallway conversations, which are so valuable, and those are difficult to engineer on a digital environment. Yeah, I mean, you already spoke about that. I mean, like that boss that spoke to you about kind of moving to that regional spot and kind of what an important kind of inflection point that was for your career. It's hard to imagine that happening via Zoom, or even if it did happen via Zoom, you're not taking it in the wrong way. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh, this guy just appeared on my screen. Well, there is that risk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, this guy just appeared on my screen. It's like, you're moving to Cincinnati. Like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> you actually referenced something really interesting. So our podcast is sort of mainly geared at finance professionals and CFOs, but you mentioned a, a very interesting societal thing that happened recently, meme, the meme stock frenzy. I guess just for the uninitiated uh, listeners, could you just give us a bit of a primer on what that was? Yeah, you know, there was this very strange moment in time where it seemed like the uh, small investor was really trying to give it to the institutional investor. And institutional investors have generally had an advantage over small investors in the sense that they have, you know, they have more horsepower, they have more research, they have more access to information, et cetera, et cetera. The internet did, in fact, level the playing field in many, many respects around that. But there was a group of individual investors who, through using technology, decided that, you know what, we think we can bring these guys down. We think that if we pick a few names and we all sort of go into them at the same time, and we all short these stocks, there's going to be tremendous, tremendous pressure. And so this thing we call the meme stock craze began, and it was, it was companies like GameStop and Bed Bath and & Beyond and a, and a few others that everybody piled into. And to a degree, it worked. But this is a little bit of the sheep theory, as I call it, which is if you think about how sheep you know, walk around in a pasture, they generally follow each other, right? 
And if they go to the edge of the cliff, they'll all fall off the cliff because they just follow each other off the cliff. Well, that's what began to happen here, where you know, even as those meme stocks began to unwind and the trades began to unwind, everybody was still piling in at exactly the wrong time. So you know, it was, it was a very interesting period of time. It drove tremendous trading volumes in the discount brokerage industry. Robinhood certainly had a hand in that as it democratized investing for the small investor. But I think a lot of people got hurt, quite honestly. A lot of them didn't quite understand the basics of investing. They understood trading. And by the way, there's a big difference between trading and investing. Trading is you've got to be looking at that 7 by 24. You've got to be prepared to pull the trigger. And not only do you need to have a buy discipline, but the more important discipline is the sell discipline. And I can't tell you how many folks rode GameStop all the way up to $250 a share and then rode it all the way back down, or AMC and rode it all the way back up and all the way back down. So sometimes I would tell you the sell discipline is actually more important sometimes than the buy discipline. It was a fascinating, and I guess as someone who had no skin in the game, a quite entertaining saga in terms of to read about it at the time. But I guess now that things have slightly cooled off a little bit, if we look at that now, what does that event, or I guess almost like a social movement in many respects, what does that tell us about the kind of commercial landscape that we're operating in now? If you're a senior leader in a large business, is there a lesson to be learned from the whole meme stock saga? There is. I think there's a few, but maybe the most pronounced is, let's compare this to what just happened with Silicon Valley Bank and what's happening today with First Republic Bank is it's now under significant pressure. And the availability of technology that enables in an instant to move money, to make a trade. It wasn't there 10 years ago. But today you look at Silicon Valley, yes, there were lots of reasons why SVB failed. We can get into that if you want. But clearly one of them was that there's very little friction left in the system as it relates to moving money, right? So when somebody says, hey, it's time to get out, guys, we think this bank has some some challenges, it's as easy as two or three clicks in your computer and you can get that money out. We've never had to deal with that before as a financial industry and as a country. Uh, So that's true in the financial industry, but it's also true more broadly. It was true in meme stocks. It's really easy to set up a Robinhood account, fund it with $100 and buy GameStop, not knowing what the heck you're doing, but you're just piling in. You're just piling in along with others. So I think the presence of the technology that we have today, the removal of the friction, if you will, in so many ways out of the system, we're still learning what that really means. Yeah, interesting stuff. You've mentioned your book already. It'd be interesting to find out a little bit more about that because you mentioned that at your time at Harvard, you focused a lot on, I guess, a lot of the social problems that we have. And I suppose my question would be initially, like, what would be the function of ruminating on those topics for any person that's in business? There's the classic kind of Milton Friedman thing of just like, oh, those are just uh, externalities. Like, why should we care? What's your feelings on it? Yeah, I don't know why you don't care. We all live in a society that in order for your business to be successful, society more broadly needs to be successful. And you can define the definition of success, but there, there needs to be, quote, quote, success, if you will. And so I, I don't think you can put your head in the sand on some of these significant social issues uh, and expect to have success as a business. You know, one of the things that I very strongly feel is that as a business leader, you have an obligation to at least take care of the communities that give you your strength. I mean, people do business with you, right? They buy your product or they buy your service or whatever. And I believe you have an obligation to provide support to that community. When you're a banker in a local market, there's an expectation, quite candidly, that you're going to give back 
with both your time, talent, and treasure. And we do that. So I don't think you can separate the social issues that the country is going through from your business issues. And I think if you try, it's probably at your own peril. Now, that said, you know, we're, we're living in the week of the Bud Light dilemma, uh, you know, and Anheuser-Busch is, is going through at the moment. And, you know, I'm not here to say who's right and who's wrong, but there is risk. There certainly is risk as you try to reach out to some of these communities and such. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, um, I just today, I, I was reading The Guardian and I saw uh, the singer-cum-rapper Kid Rock firing a machine gun at, at numerous cases of Bud Light. And yeah, it was a interesting thing. For uh, uninitiated listeners, this is the the controversy around Bud Light who um, have signed up uh, the comedian Dylan Mulvaney as a, a I guess a, a spokesperson would be the, the thing to say. Yeah. It's a very interesting and difficult decision for business. And you know, I could play this lots of different ways. I, I think certainly inside the company is one thing, you know, Disney inside the company is Disney and they can pretty much do as they want. When they traverse that line and start to, and impose is a strong word, but to start to suggest behavioral norms outside the organization, I think that's when it gets difficult. Yeah. It's such a tricky, tricky space. It's really, really hard. I Disney has has picked up a lot of trouble in Florida, I know, with, with Ron DeSantis and everything. But um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's hard to see a way out, I guess, in terms of you know, there's always this talk of like the culture, the culture wars that seem to pervade and seem to really crowd out any kind of constructive conversations that we could potentially have about the many social challenges that we have. Um, that's an interesting one for um, for senior people in business because obviously, if you're employing a large workforce, that's thousands of people. That's people with different perspectives, to people with different outlooks, people with different religious beliefs. To what extent should you try to address? the world out there at work. I think about Basecamp and they basically just said flat out, no discussing politics at work. Is there a happy happy middle ground? Well, that's a really difficult question in today's highly charged environment. I think at the end of the day, you know, you have to let people live their best lives. And you do want people to bring their best life to work, their best selves to work, if you will. And so you're kind of torn between what that looks like. And as a company, you know, I do think you have stakeholders that you have to consider. Your employees are stakeholders, your clients are stakeholders, your shareholders of one form or another, your community. They're all stakeholders and they all need to be, you know, you need to be attentive to all of them. But I also think the the primary role of a company is to offer a product, offer a service and provide a great one at that. And so customers will decide at the end of the day, they have the freedom to choose. And again, Bud Light, you know, they've lost some business clearly. Maybe they've picked up some business from folks that they were trying to attract. I, I don't know. But I think that's the calculus that every business has to go through. Peter, tell us what the title of your book is and, and firstly, where we can get it and find it and buy it and peruse it. Yeah, thanks. The book's called Taking Stock, uh, 10 Life and Leadership Principles from My Seat at the Table. It was released in March. You can find it on Amazon, uh, on Apple Books, on, on the Nook. Pretty much any bookstore at this point can get it for you. If they don't have it on the shelf, they can get it for you. So it's been widely distributed across the country. And I got to tell you, I'm very gratified. I'm extremely gratified by the response to date. We've had some tremendous endorsements from some very noteworthy individuals. The reviews on Amazon have been absolutely wonderful. I think we're five stars still. I think the reason it's touching people it's the real world. I mean, these leadership lessons in this life that I've led for good or for bad, it's from a practitioner standpoint. And that is so different than a purely academic standpoint. No disrespect to 
the academics who write lots of these leadership books. But I'll just say what I did. So I'll contrast that with somebody who spent 35 years in the trenches, somebody who spent 35 years on the front line and can write intelligently, hopefully, about the 2008 crisis as a crisis of leadership as much as it was a crisis around finances, if you will. So it's gotten a wonderful response, and I hope that it will continue to, uh, to help people consider how they might use my principles, our principles, to enhance their own lives. It's a very valid point around the sort of, I guess, the academic side of things. It's like the difference between reading a book about military strategy and tactics and reading a soldier's book about combat. Like, they're about the same thing, but, I mean, one is very different than the other, for sure. So the subtitle of the book is 10 Life and Leadership Principles from My Seat at the Table. Is there a particular one of those 10 that really, really sticks out for you that is as an absolute cornerstone of your life and work philosophy? It's awfully difficult because the 10 really work in concert with each other. I would say if there was only one I could pick, it was this idea that you have to build mutually beneficial and enduring relationships with individuals. We talked about this earlier, you know, the challenge of doing that in this digital age, uh, if you will. It still takes one-to-one. It still takes a really, a really wonderful opportunity to meet and develop relationships with people. It's elemental. It's elemental to your life. It's elemental to your career. It's elemental to your family, and it's something I just feel very, very strongly about. And in the book, I discuss this this concept of what I call relationship equilibrium. And if you think about equilibrium, it's a state where things are in balance, right, where you feel really good. So if you think about that in the context of a relationship, what that basically means is, hey, I give as much as I get. I feel really good about this relationship. It's in balance, if you will. That could be a marriage. That could be an employer-employee relationship. That could be a friend, whatever it might be. And we all know what happens when you get out of balance and when you have disequilibrium is people get divorced. I mean, couples get divorced, people leave companies. And when you ask them why, fundamentally, they're saying in one form or another, you know what, I just wasn't happy here. My manager wasn't providing me development opportunities and I want to grow. But in some form or another, there's this disequilibrium. And so I think the goal in these relationships is to achieve what I, again, what I term relationship equilibrium. And I think if you can do that, that's the best outcome you can have. Yeah, that's something I think about a lot in just my personal life. One of my favorite writers is a sci-fi writer called Kim Stanley Robinson. And he he has this line in one of his novels, 2312, where he says, um, love is a, is a kind of giving of attention. In many respects, it's work because <laughs> um, it's something that you have to kind of constantly kind of work at. It's not something that you can just kind of like do and it just kind of stays there. It's almost like a, like a plant. You need to kind of like look after it nicely. And I suppose in your kind of career, you've probably seen instances where people have just kind of let what were once positive relationships drift into almost by default, not even necessarily negative ones, but just kind of like into non-positive ones, I guess you would say. Well, you use the right word. I mean, it's basically cultivation. It takes constant cultivation. And, you know, think about friends of yours, right? You've got some very close friends and you've got some acquaintances and you've got some people that if you see, you might say hello to, but they're not even really acquaintances, if you will. And the difference is about how, how close you are to that individual, that individual, how you look at that individual and how that individual looks at you. Um, the opportunity for the two of you to collaborate together on something maybe, maybe bigger. So, you know, I think it's really important to know the people who are in that, their circle, if you will, 
know the ones that you have deep relationships with and cultivate those and maintain those. And then you're going to have some relationships that are, this is going to seem a little oxymoronic in a way, but that are more transactional. They're going to be more transactional. That's okay. We all have them. I go to the grocery store. I have a nice interaction with the cashier when I leave, but that's a transaction and that's okay. But make sure you really know the people that you need to be close to who want to have mutual benefit and want to achieve this, what I call relationship equilibrium. Have you ever heard of the Dunbar number? So Robin Dunbar, who's a, he's a social anthropologist, he's going to come on the podcast at some point in the near future. He basically quantified the number of stable social relationships you can really have with people. He put it at about 150, and then he breaks it down at different ones. There's like the really, really, really close ones. and But yeah, 150 is about the people that you can really kind of have a relationship with. And I suppose you can kind of give or take on the number, but it's an interesting idea, which is, you know, like you say, it's not just about stacking friendships aimlessly. You have to also kind of be very kind of careful about not just sort of, I guess, trying to be everything to everyone. And there's a saying in journalism where like, it's like you can have knowledge that's a a mile wide, but an inch deep. And I suppose you can say the same thing for like relationships, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I think of it as concentric circles, right? In the middle, you've got those very deep relationships that are absolutely, you know, critical to you. And then the next layer, you've got important relationships that you certainly want to maintain and you want to cultivate. And then you've got friendships and then you've got sort of transactions on the outer ring. And where do you want to spend most of your time? In the inner circle. You know, you want to spend a disproportionate amount of your time securing, managing, maintaining, cultivating those relationships because those are the ones that, you know, you're the closest to. And then, you know, you'll spend some time in the next circle as well. But it's so important to know who's in which circle so you know where to spend your time and your attention. It certainly seems like a fascinating topic. In terms of the, the book itself, you mentioned at, you wrote it at your time at Harvard. Were you planning to write a book or was it something that just kind of happened organically? Yeah, a bit of both. You know, so over the years, I've sort of kept notes of some of these principles and some of my thoughts, and I never really thought I'd take them and write a book uh, over them. But I think the time at Harvard sort of stimulated me to do so. And I was seeing these principles over and over again come into focus. They came out of my business life, but they're really applicable in life more broadly and not just in the business in the business setting. And so that's where I decided, I'm like, you know what, I think I've got something to tell. I think I've got some information that others might benefit from. And so I decided to go ahead and put them, put them on a piece of paper. So now that you've got the book out, where to next? What's next in line for you? Well, that's a good question. I'd like to answer that. I've got a couple different paths I'm pursuing. You know, one, do I want to get back in and do another very, very large CEO type job? And, you know, at 61, I've, I've got to think about that. I definitely have a lot more to give, but that's that's a lot. That's a lot of activity and a lot of effort. So that's certainly one path. I'm on four or five company boards today, and I'm, I'm passionate about some not-for-profit work that I do as well. And so certainly that's a second path that I can pursue. So, you know, I'm still in the middle of sort of sorting my, sorting my way through that. My non-compete's over, so that's good. Uh, so I can think about these things now. And um, I would say in the next few months, I'll make a judgment about what the next chapter is going to look like. With your CEO and board member hat on, can you tell us a little bit about what sort of things you are looking for or would look for in a CFO or potential CFO appointee? Good question. I've worked with some phenomenal CFOs over time, and there's always five things that, that I look for principally. Number one, 
they need to be a great steward, obviously, of the firm's assets. I mean, they are the, the individual and the team that is the steward of our assets. Second, and maybe the most important, they have to be a trusted advisor. When I think about some of the most important relationships I have in an office setting, in a business setting, it's always my CFO, it's my head of HR, my general counsel. I don't go anywhere without them, <laughs> quite honestly, all of them, because they really form the nexus of the team that helps to run the organization. And so trusted advisor to the CEO and to the line of business heads, you know, more and more, the best CFOs are working horizontally, not just vertically. They're working horizontally with all the line of business heads. They're collaborating with them. They're strategizing with them. They're helping make them better. A third dimension, though, is I think the CFO is, is central in helping to formulate the company strategy. And so I'm looking for somebody, always looking for somebody who has either done that or has the capability to do that and can participate fully in the creation and execution of the company strategy. I also like to find someone who is, has both internal and external perspectives. More and more, you know, you look for folks who can bring those external perspectives into the organization. And I think that's incredibly important. And lastly, you know, they have to be able to talk credibly to the street, to investors and to other, uh, other stakeholders in and out of the organization. That last one in particular is such a big one now in terms of the role that the CFO plays in um, gaining investment. Has that changed quite a lot in, over the course of your career? Is that something that you've seen yourself or is it just something that we seem to think is new and is, isn't actually that new? No, I do think it's, it's fairly new. If I go back 25, 30 years, it seemed like the CEO was the one always going around doing the capital raise and, and was the one talking to the street. You know, if you watch CNBC today, I'd say a third of the company representatives that come on are CFOs, not always the CEO. I think the CFO has gained a lot of credibility in the C-suite. I think they have a lot of credibility on Wall Street, and they are a critical, critical member of the leadership team, both internally and externally. Very, very interesting. We're pretty much out of time, Peter, uh, but I always like to to finish every interview with uh, like a question that looks back a little bit more over your career. I'd like to know, I mean, you speak so eloquently about your experiences and so on. I'd be interested to know whether there is a mistake that really, really stands out as something that was a big learning experience for you in your career? Yeah, we've made lots of mistakes. We've all made them. The question isn't whether you make them because you will, it's whether you learn from them, right? And pledge not to repeat that mistake again. And I mentioned this earlier, but it's worth repeating. You know, I think I stayed too long at certain places and it wasn't that I was bored. I was busy as could be, but it was, I wasn't learning. I wasn't growing. I wasn't stretching. I wasn't developing at the pace that I wanted to develop. And I can at least think of two instances where I allowed that to happen. And I, I wish I hadn't. I wish that I had moved on a little bit more quickly. So I, I think everybody just needs to sit back and consider when you're at that point, you know, what's what's the next, next best opportunity for you, to, for you to take. But I'd say this though, I, I think, you know, if I think about three or four pieces of advice for aspiring financial leaders, I would leave you with this. One, take intelligent risks. <laughs> I didn't want to move to Cincinnati. I didn't want to move to Kansas City, but I did. And I grew much more quickly. I got you know way ahead from where I would have been if I sat in my office in Boston. So take those intelligent risks. Second, and something that has to be learned, you need to hire people that compliment you and challenge you. You know, the leader that hires people that look just like them and marches in line and gets, it doesn't work. You want people who challenge you around that table. 
And as long as I do it respectfully and ethically, it's all, it's all good with me. But ensure you find people who compliment and challenge you. Third, constantly challenge yourself to improve. None of us are done learning and growing. And we won't be until we, we draw our last breath because that's the essence of life is to learn and grow and to develop. And my last piece of advice for everyone is to do what you love and love what you do. And if you don't, it's time to move on. Yeah. Peter De Silva, thank you very much uh, for your time today. You can buy Peter's book, Taking Stock 10 Life and Leadership Principles from My Seat at the Table. By the sounds of it, anywhere that sells books pretty much, but uh, obviously you have Amazon and you know your local bookstore. So uh, yeah, give that a read. It sounds really, really interesting, Peter. I, I might pick up a copy myself. Brand, thanks. It was wonderful to be with you. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel your growth. Learn more at soldo.com.